20. Today, the high is in the low 40s. The current temperature is 40 degrees. Humidity, 34%. The winds are northeast at 12 miles an hour. And the barometer reached 30.37 inches, and it's steady. These highlights in the news at this hour. Three men killed and eight others injured. In explosion aboard the United States Navy destroyer Barcelona, 100 miles east of Newport, Rhode Island. One of two defendants in the Manny Gambino kidnap case pleads guilty. He's also expected to plead guilty to Gambino's murder in a deal with the government. Juan Corona, convicted last month of murdering 25 California farm workers, sentenced to 25 consecutive life prison terms. Special State Committee investigating New York City government says 12 years of urban renewal in Brownsville has done nothing but foster decay. And that's the latest from the WOR Newsroom. Lester Smith reporting over WOR New York, your station for news as it happens. I'll be back with another full 15 minutes of all the news at 11 o'clock. And right now it's time for Gene Shepard. tonight, friends. I mean, it depends on your relationship to the animal world. But for those of you who watch, uh, you know, the Disney-type uh, animal uh, things constantly, don't worry about that uh, that record yet. Let's stick with the first one here, gang. Let's get let's quit the show here. The, uh, the uh, thing that uh, I have to report tonight is that we have received... Have you heard of uh, Old Raider? Any of you heard of Old Raider? Fantastic scene going on. Up in Alaska. Yeah, Old Raider. Old Raider. It sounds like a very bad bourbon. But uh, <laughs> it is not. A cabin-wrecking grizzly bear who leaves a gigantic 12-inch track 
That's a fantastic track. Do you realize his foot is 12 inches long? Think of, think of an animal with a, with a paw 12 inches long. He leaves a gigantic 12-inch track and does not hibernate like other bears. Now, you know, generally you can consider uh, a bear as uh, being uh, incommunicado for at least a few months. You figure, you know, he's knocking off, taking his nap, and uh, everybody can get out and play and sing and, and grow their radishes while the bear is doing what bears do, hibernate, right? This one does not hibernate. And uh, he's, he's going all the time. And he may set, according to the latest information we have here, he may set a, a hell-raising record. Uh, the worst hell-raising bear along the Salchar River near Fairbanks in Alaska. Known as Old Raider, he has wrecked 27 cabins along a 50-mile stretch of the river in one month. Now, this is the new record, by the way. We have to salute him. It's a new record. A cabin-wrecking record of 50 was set by a bear three winters ago. Old Raider has uh, now gone over that record in this one month of seven cabins that he has wrecked. Uh, the current cabin-crushing technique is so much like the one of the 1969-1970 series that many persons suspect that it was Old Raider who was out working at that time. But he's just coming back now to break his old record and to show them that old Raider's got plenty of fight left. Give it a head. Oh, God. Oh. Bring it up big. I want it to sound of old Raider wrecking a cabin. Well, ah. ah. oh, hold it up. Oh, thank, thank you, Ed. Thank you, thank you. We've got women and children listening. Thank you, Edward. That's very good. You, you must uh, admit that you never see that kind of bear in Disneyland. No, you don't. Uh... In fact, uh, if you will watch the animal world, uh, if, you get, if you gain your knowledge of the animal world from television, most people, I'm sure, uh, have the feeling that bears and other, thing, other cuddly creatures like that are really just uh, displaced Santa Clauses. They're kind of furry, uh, elderly uncles, cuddly, and uh, kind of funny. You remember, you remember uh, Gentle Ben? Remember him? Well, what you didn't see, if you look carefully at the, at the Gentle Ben, well, you could see it if you look carefully, that attached to Gentle Ben, uh, he had this collar on. Did you notice that? He was wearing a collar. Did you, do you remember that he wore a collar all the time? Now, attached to the collar in practically every scene that he was seen on television was a gigantic, like a five-inch steel chain <laughs> that attached Gentle Ben to whatever... Uh, concrete post you could set in the ground like 40 feet to keep him there so that he didn't just, you know, just wade right into the crew one day. Eat up the camera, start on the power truck, and uh, devour 4,000 miles of tape. Uh, but, the, you know, this is the way bears are. In fact, uh, the bear, for, for uh, it's uh, kind of discouraging to realize this, that the bear, in, in, uh, in actual uh, competition with other mammals, am, am, mammals, is one of the least predictable of all creatures, you are aware of this that the that the that the animal trainers will tell you they just as soon have uh, you know four or five tigers than one walking around polar bear. Oh, incidentally, the polar bear is considered the most <laughs> the most dangerous of all mammals. Are you aware of that? I mean, he is something else. And uh, and having been in Alaska, and I can appreciate the story of old old raider there. Uh, it's a great name, you know. He's a, I can just see him 
waiting in the weeds, and then he comes roaring out. He sees another great cabin ahead of him, and he he does it. In fact, I heard a story. I, I think I I don't think I told this story, and it's uh, it's just a, 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 what happened in Juneau a couple of seasons ago. Juneau is an Alaskan town, and uh, it's uh, right on the coast, and it's a kind of a curiously beautiful town. It looks like a in a way, if when you're far back from it, if you were, say, a mile or two back from Juneau, it looks like a miniature San Francisco laid in the middle of these fantastic mountains. And way high above you, you can see tiny waterfalls. And you can hear a muffled roar of distant and, and uh, a, a kind of multitude of waterfalls all around the town. And this is the way the town sounds on an average day. This is a summer day. And... Uh, and during the winter, of course, it's, it's a different story because there's uh, snow on these mountains and occasionally you can hear the sound of an avalanche in the distance. However, on one uh, just uh, ordinary walking around Sunday, the uh, citizens of uh, Juneau are just like any place else. You know, they sleep late on Sunday and all that sort of thing. And, and uh, there were a bunch of them had gone to this church. There are a lot of little churches in town. It's a little compact city, by the way. Juneau is, is a little tiny place. It was compact. And uh, when something happens on one end of town, the vibrations are heard on the other end of town almost instantly. I mean, you drop a bowling ball on one end of the city, and uh, people jump on the other side of town. They hear it. It's just like that. And incidentally, the town, due to the fact that it's almost completely surrounded by mountains, on three sides, just all around it, it has a natural parabolic effect, which is to say, if you blow your horn too loudly in Juneau, uh, you're liable to knock glasses off people's uh, uh, covered shelves for blocks around just because of this parabolic effect, you see. Well, everybody is at the church on this Sunday morning, and they're coming out. It's about 8, 39, 10 o'clock in the morning, something like that, and uh, they're all dressed up. When uh, one of the parishioners, whom I happen to talk to, just a guy, he said uh, he'd come out of this thing, see, and he, was, he felt kind of great, uh, you know, that the uh, church was over today. He could hardly wait to get back to his pad where he could have a couple of fingers of bourbon to bring back his spirits after church, see. Incidentally, bur- <laughs> I might tell you that Juneau is one of the highest heavy drinking towns in the world. Drinking is a preoccupation in Juneau. In fact, it is an occupation with several of the people there. It's not a preoccupation. Their job happens to be an afterthought after drinking. They drink heavily in Juneau. So he said he came out of the... Out of the and, of course, they all say that it doesn't affect you up there. That's due to the uh, climate and all that. So uh, you can drink a lot and nothing happens. This is apocryphal. Uh, in fact, I saw two guys sitting at the bar there. The uh, uh, Actually, it was the polar... No, it wasn't the polar bar. It was the uh, red something bar right on the main street of Juneau. They looked like they were made entirely out of rubber, these two guys. <laughs> they were so bagged. So, nevertheless... These people came out of church on this Sunday, and the sun was out. A beautiful day, and it was uh, one of the two or three days of the year that the sun actually came out in Juneau because it rains there steadily, either rains or snows. And the sun was out, and he said he thought that was a little unusual. So he, he walked out, he looked up, and he said, By God, there's the sun. With that, three or four people looked up the sun. They started, you know, they, they staggered away and hold their hands over their eyes. They don't see it much. When he looked down at the end of the street and he sees this, he thought that the... Uh, well, he, he said at first it, it, he had the idea that uh, that uh, somebody had just come into town, somebody new come into town. They were wearing a big fur coat. And he looked down there, and he's, he, you know, being a naturally jovial person, this is the way it is in Juneau, 
He waved down there. He says, hi. With that, this thing stood up on its hind legs, and he saw it was not a person wearing a fur coat. It was a grizzly bear wearing his fur coat. And uh, he proceeds to come right down the main street on his hind legs. He says, never saw anything like it. And, and uh, this grizzly bear standing up on his hind legs, he comes to about eight feet or maybe nine. That's a very large person uh, to wade amid the congregation of a Presbyterian group who have just spilled out on the street. And he said, he just waded right down the middle of the street, see? And, he, and, he, and he's, he's looking around, and he's got his arms outspread as if, in, uh, as if to embrace the population, which apparently he was trying to do in one swell hoop. He just comes out, he lets out one roar, and he says, it's a fantastic scene. Everybody kept just come out of the church, you know, and the reverend was standing there and on the steps and uh, saying, thank you very much. I appreciate the fact that you liked my, my, uh, my sermon today on the subject of sin. I say, he who liveth in a glass house shall not. And he's going on like that. And all of a sudden, the bear goes, Well, the whole crowd spun. He said it was a fantastic sight. They all spun as one person. He says, the ladies, kids, everybody there, even the minister. He said, they spun as one person, and the bear let out another one. Which echoed from the mountains for miles around. And he said... As one person, they turned. Just as one person, they turned. This is a great sight. He's because all the other houses were were closed up. It was Sunday. Everybody's asleep. See, and he's a little crowd of people on the street there in front of the church. He said they turned as one person. He said they didn't say a word. They didn't yell and holler like, help, help, here comes the bear. He said nothing. They just all turned. And he said with one, just absolutely one instinct, they went thundering down the street. The people are running down the street, and this bear stands up, and he sees this crowd running, see, and he stands up, and he goes, Well, by that time, the roar has echoed all the way down to the other side of Juno. (laughs) And people are starting to look, you know, out of the windows, and, uh, gee, Fred's uh, coming home early this Sunday, drunk, listening to him yelling on the street. And with that, he lets out another... He said the entire town of Juneau proceeded to evacuate immediately. They're jumping into their station wagons, cars, the whole bit. And he said they, they're roaring out of town. And this bear just walks right down the middle of the main street. On his hind legs, he said it was the biggest cinnamon bear, grizzly cinnamon that he had ever seen. Now, a, a cinnamon grizzly uh, is legendary up in, in the, the Alaskan area that the cinnamon grizzly is a little slightly different species of grizzly, I guess, but they're a different color. They grow larger. They are rarer. And they are the meanest animal on two feet. Remember, they walk on two feet most of the time when they're in business. He said the meanest animal on, on two feet that this earth has ever seen. And this big cinnamon grizzly just walked right down the main street of Juneau, Alaska, never looking to the right or left, and every couple of minutes he would raise his arms and go, walk right through town and right out of town, up the mountain, and they could hear him stomping up the side of the mountain. Thank you. Very good, Ed. That was very nice. And uh, that concludes tonight's salute to Disneyland. 
And uh, those cuddly little bear people. Uh, this is uh, W.O.R. Speaking of great stalkers in the night, this is W.O.R. who stands now with its great arms outstretched, uh, pointing its way now, its great snout towards Staten Island, and going... <laughs> God. <laughs> You're tough. Mean. Hey, listen, we got a new sponsor tonight, and I'm going to lay it on you. You know, we've had a lot of good sponsors in the past that deal with restaurants, and and for a long time, people have been writing to me saying, listen, you, you've been laying some good Chinese stuff on us. You know any good French-Italian-type restaurants uh, in in New York City? And we do. In fact, this restaurant, which is over on 46th Street, which is right off the Theatrical District, you know, just off Times Square, 344 West 46th Street, is called Jack's Epicure. Now, if you're curious why they call it Jack, that's a strange name. It sounds a little bit like a some kind of a one-arm joint, but it is not. No way. You know why they call it Jack's Epicure? Jack's, this is an interesting story is the one of the great legendary speakeasies of New York back in the days of Prohibition. And it was called Jack's. Uh, and, and at that time, this, this great legendary speakeasy was operated by a famous six-day bike racer, of all things. And all the showbiz people came to Jack's. It was a famous, famous... Uh, and a really authentic speakeasy. And if you'd like to see the way a speakeasy actually looked, it remains to this day as a legendary underground restaurant in New York. And uh, there, and a lot of the people who come there, this is a curious thing, are still people, are people who were there during the days of Prohibition. I mean, a lot of the uh, customers and stuff still hang around down there. And it's a fine, fine northern well, it's northern Italian, southern French cooking. You know that that border cooking that is a very unusual kind of cooking. In case, in case you're, if you know anything about Italian food, you know that the further south you go in Italy, the more they run to pasta and uh, tomato sauce and so on. That's that's the Sicilian southern cooking. The farther north you go, the more the food becomes more and more like French cooking, or it's it's hard to tell which came first. Uh, but it, it becomes more northern in that it runs more to uh, veal dishes, all kinds of elegant uh, elegant uh, fish dishes and so on. Until finally the northern, the, right the northern border of Italy, Trieste, that whole area, uh, shares a lot of its cooking with France. And this is the kind of cooking that they have in Jack's Epicure. It's elegant food. The prices are good. It's French and northern Italian food. The address again is 344 West 46th Street, and they're open Monday through Saturday for lunch and dinner. They're open uh, for dinner Monday through Saturday. They're closed Sundays. And when you go in there and you look around, uh, what what more elegant than to have a have a French restaurant whose owner is named Victor? I mean, it almost sounds like it was done in central casting, but you go down and you look for Victor Marlier, and Victor will come out and he will tell you, if you ask him, he will tell you about the day that Bob Hope, who was playing on Broadway at the time, making practically no money, uh, paid for his meal by check, which bounced. And they still have the check there. <laughs> so this is Jack's Epicure, 344 West 46th Street. Try it. Food is good. Now, you know, uh, getting back to, uh, to this uh, bear scene, I don't want to, I don't want to, 
you know, burden you with the, with the terrible bear stories today. But I'm going to, actually. You want to hear more about bears? Because when you get up into Alaska, practically the first thing you hear about are bears. Uh, and, and you don't hear about bears down here much. Nobody talks about a bear. And, uh, and bears are, are, are a big uh, subject of, uh, of, a, of a lot of talk up there. In fact, uh, to, to carry it even further, uh, this is kind of a gruesome story. But in one town that I was in in Alaska, I was met at the plane. And by the way, uh, one of the strangest uh, airlines, one of the, not strange in the sense that it's not a good airline, it's an excellent airline, but one of the curious, uh, well, I can only say interior decor and attitude airlines that I've ever been on in my life is Alaskan Airways. You ever hear of Alaskan Airlines or Airways? It's the, it flies from uh, Seattle up to Alaska. That's, that's the only place they go. And in the interior of Alaska, well, their airplanes are decorated very elegantly inside. Now, these are jets. These are, you know, 737s and 727s. And uh, they you, they look like a regular, you know, standard airplane from the outside. But when you get inside, totally different scene. For one thing, you know, you're used to the fact that airplane seats are a certain kind of decor. They're usually light blue, this kind of... Uh, of a burlap-like knit, you know, that kind of uh, fabric they have, or they, they're some kind of a naugahyte plastic and so on. But this airline's seats are decorated and are, are upholstered in dark red, I mean solid red, dark, almost wine-colored red, dark red velvet. Now, how's that? I mean, the back and the seat. Well, that's not all. You know, up above where the, where the luggage rack hangs in, in most airplanes, they have this luggage rack. Well, their luggage rack is lined with this dark red stuff. And hanging from the edge of the luggage rack is a dark red curtain with a gold ball fringe. <laughs> I mean, you have a feeling like you're in an 1895 bordello, you know, <laughs> which is incidentally what they're striving for. And the, the, the girls, the fantastic costumes the girls wear. The girls wear these Russian Cossack jackets with the high collar, you know, that big high circular collar. And the, the jackets are blood red. And uh, they wear these, uh, these short uh, kind of uh, billowy knickers, black knickers, the pants they wear, and high black boots. And they wear the Cossack hat and that high fur hat that sticks way up. And, these, these, and they have interesting stewardesses or stewardi to begin with because many of them have Eskimo and Indian and even Russian backgrounds because they come from Alaska. And there's a lot of Russian influence up in Alaska. If you ever get up there, you know that, that the churches and everything all around there, uh, you, you think like you're in old uh, Minsk or someplace in, in certain areas. There, yeah, they have these onion-type churches, you know, with the, the onion steeple on the, type, on the top, the old Russian Orthodox and uh, all the names are in there, a lot of Russian names. Practically every other restaurant or hotel is named Baranov. Do you know who Baranov was? Okay. <laughs> all right, we'll leave that for your homework. But uh, nevertheless, uh, getting in his plane, say I get in a plane and, and uh, they have this, this purple velvet, this red velvet, everybody sits down. And it, it gives a, a different feeding to an airplane inside. It's a, a curious feeling of... Uh, of uh, déjà vu, it's a it's a hard feeling to describe. It's like something out of the remote past. Yeah, here it is. It's in an airplane, and uh, these girls have this this kind of high cheekbone, uh, this this uh, subtle exotic quality they're radiating. 
So we sit down on a plane, and the plane takes off. And we are now flying over the ice fields uh, near Mount McKinley. Nothing but tremendous fields of ice. By the way, this was not too far from the area where that plane was lost, you know, with the speaker of the house in it. And this is real wilderness. Oh, boy, is it. that? I mean, you see nothing but these great glaciers and great long sheets of uh, endless ice and peaks, mountain peaks. We're, we're whistling along. We're not too far from Russia. Uh, Russia's about, uh, oh, maybe 100 miles airline from there, which is a very short flight for a, a jet. Uh, and and you, can, you can almost see just the faint outline of uh, Siberia over there off to your left as you fly north in this airplane. In fact, the, the uh, pilot came on the intercom and he said that at this point, uh, we are now under surveillance of the, uh, the Siberian Air Force fighter base that's just opposite us. So they're watching us on radar. He said, we, we're always being observed. He said, and occasionally we'll see a few MiGs will come out and just uh, fly along out, out, out over the strait there to observe us. He says, if you see them today, no, no worry about it. He said, they know us and we know them and so everything's fine. He said, but we are now under radar surveillance of Siberia. And so we're whistling along at 35,000 feet when from back of the plane these, these girls wheel this cart out. And this is the most uh, interesting uh, snack, if I can call it that, that I've ever had aboard an airplane. And I've flown on airplanes all over the world, including uh, Air Niger. Uh, there's a goodie. Uh, according Air Liban. Uh, you know where that is. That's, uh, that's the uh, Lebanese Airlines. These are all the airlines. I wish I had uh, a, uh, an ashtray or something from all the airlines that I've flown on. I've flown on airlines all over the world, and this one sticks in my mind. Uh, we are now flying over the ice fields, and uh, we're in Alaska. It's hard to believe this is an American place because it's so, there's so many alien things to it uh, that, that really are not uh, typical of what you think of as our home. For one thing, they had a gun rack in the airplane. Beautiful, polished, teakwood gun rack that when you got aboard the plane, you would just uh, put your gun in the gun rack. Uh, well, the guns, and, the, and they were beautiful guns. Uh, people carrying aboard these 30-06s and all, all these big heavy rifles, and they just put them in a rack there, and the girl snaps them into the rack. In fact, I have a picture of a stewardess carrying this great big Mauser aboard the plane. She's going to put it in the rack. So we're whistling along. You can see it's exotic. These guys are all lounging. These these uh, sourdough-looking types are all, ca you know, casually lounging around in the seats with their with their big uh, wool checkered shirts and their fur caps, and, and uh, they're, they're they have the slit-eyed look of a man who is who has uh, peered into the north wind too long, and he finds that nothing any longer frightens him at all, and so they're lounging around. And from the back of the plane, we hear they're preparing our little, our little, uh, our little thing, you know, a little feast, and the little feasties coming up. With that, these two girls wearing the Russian costumes push this very ornate cart. Now it really was ornate. It was ornate in the 19th century uh, elegance style. Uh, it was made of uh, what looked like polished brass, but it had these big brass wheels. But very ornate. All kinds of of uh, curly cues and. And uh, it's almost nouveau art, and, you, and they're pushing this this cart forward. And on the cart, in the middle of it, was a magnificent 
beautifully polished brass. And, and it looked like a real antique. I'm just curious where they got it. Beautifully polished brass uh, uh, samovar. You know what a samovar is. It's a great serving. Uh, out of a samovar, you serve your tea. It's a great polished brass pot with ebony handles on the on the spigots. <laughs> they, they wheel this out. Say, well... Yeah, the two girls are working the thing along, and they're giving each one of us little tiny glasses, which uh, are real glasses, no plastic, little tiny glasses with uh, with uh, with gold. Would it look like gold? I suppose it wasn't, but with gold filigree on the outside of the glasses. You know the kind of glasses that have a little metal base like with filigree around them, elegant European style glasses. And they're handing us each one of these little glasses. They're about the size of a shot glass, really, but very elegant. And uh, so at that, she takes your, she gives you your glass, and you hold your glass out, and she, she very carefully turns the spigot, and out of the spigot of the, of the uh, samovar comes this steaming liquid. She goes, it's hot. Now, being a, you know, being a typical uh, uh, airline uh, rider, I, I figured, you know, this is uh, some kind of instant tea or something they're laying on me. Well, I took one sip of this thing, and I want to tell you, my left eyebrow flew up, and it's still loose. It has not yet attached itself. It was not at all what I thought it was. And I said, what the? This is great. What is this? She says, uh, this is a drink we serve on the plane. And I said, it is. What is it? She says, it is a Russian drink. You will enjoy it. You just drink it. And well, at that point, I said, well, okay, you know, what the hell? When in Alaska, do as the Alaskans do. So I downed my thimble full of this stuff. And it was. It was exceedingly uh, fulfilling, is a good word. That uh, it uh, was fulfilling. I, I, uh, and it uh, appeared to be a concoction of uh, some kind of hot coffee, with apparently a dash of some sort of uh, of uh, chocolate, uh, rough chocolate liqueur, with uh, with obviously a large dollop of high quality vodka, with some rare spices. Uh, all of it, the combination in that thimble, steaming in that airplane flying over the ice fields, looking down upon uh, on Mount McKinley and, and the, the great uh, roaring chasms of the wilderness, it was a very nice touch. So uh, I, uh, I passed back my glass for a second. And uh, the second was even better than the first. It was amazing how that stuff tends to, uh, to become even more jovial as time wears on. And a third and a fourth. And by George, within within an hour, we are flying north towards Nome, which is way far north. If you've got your map of Alaska out, you'll see the flight from Juneau to Nome is a long, long way. And they kept pushing that samovar back and forth and serving beluga, uh, beluga caviar. Oh, you, you, do you like caviar? Well, now, I've never really been a caviar cuckoo, but I might say that caviar is one of those dishes one must be introduced to in the proper manner that uh, when when uh, when in the Arctic uh, drinking a, uh, a a concoction of Russian vodka uh, beluga caviar has a curious uh, attraction it too was fulfilling and so <laughs> I, I, I we're flying north and all the while I see that gun rack up there and I see these girls moving back and forth under the uh, the uh, dark red velour of a 19th century bordello, I realized that there are other ways to live. That the ambassador flight is not necessarily the ultimate in experience. <laughs> it really isn't. And so, 
we flew on, and I, as the plane landed at, at one out, really way out. Now, I don't know why I started on this Alaskan thing, but if you find it interesting, I will continue. Do you, Ed? The plane landed on the way up. See, we're flying north, ever north, as, uh, as Robert Service would say. And as you fly north, ever north, the conditions change, obviously, because you're flying thousands of miles, and it's getting colder and colder, until finally we landed at a, well, it looked like just, it was a single strip, and it was not a, a real uh, airline terminal, I think it was, it was a hunting station, actually, is what it was, where some mail is dropped off and some mail is put down and picked up, and uh, one passenger gets on, and it was a little tiny shack, just a little shack, just about the size of Studio 3 here, which is not very big. Now, we've had it enlarged since Earl Dowd came, but it's not very big. The studios, you know, it's about, uh, this This little shack was about 20 feet deep by about 5 feet across, a little narrow shack, and that's it. It's made out of wood, painted white, and back of it you saw this great, great ice sheet rising to the sky. Now, why we stopped there, I don't know, but I, I, I immediately got out of the plane. We we're going to be there for about five minutes, see, so I got out and I, I felt this breeze blowing cold. Uh, there's, a, there's something unmistakable about a, a, a glacial wind. Uh, if you've ever felt the glacial wind, it feels like a permanent wind, and it is. And uh, what a glacial wind is, uh, you could go into it geologically, but it basically is a wind that's produced by the... Uh, constant uh, contrast between vaguely warmer air and colder air that is coming off of a glacier. This is a giant ice cube, really, is what a glacier is. So you have this steady, cold, clammy, but it's, it's, it's the kind of icy wind that you feel when you open the freezer compartment of your refrigerator and you feel that puff of coldness. Well, it's, a, it's, a, it's that kind of coldness. And so this wind is just blowing softly with no puffs and just a, a soft, steady breeze, like somewhere there was a big fan just going, just blowing, it was coming down from the glacier, and very, very, very cold. And so I step out of the plane, nothing, but uh, not a sound anywhere, just this breeze. And the stewardess comes out of the, of the building, and she's carrying this Mauser, which uh, she's going to put in, and we're waiting for, you know, passengers. So finally, the passenger walks out, and uh, he's got a big Mackinac on. He's got this big Mauser, and uh, he was something. He was not a hunter. He's not, he not a tourist, obviously. And he just walks past me, and I see another guy standing by the building. And I walk over to him, and uh, I said, uh, quite a place. He said, yep. I said, uh, must be uh, pretty lonely around here sometimes. Yep, it is. But planes come. See, they don't come in the winter, but they come. We see people once in a while. And I notice he is wearing his jacket with the left sleeve pinned up to the shoulder. And uh, I, I, I'm not the kind who asks people questions of things like that. And so uh, I just said to them, well, good to see you. And he said, yeah, he said, come back sometime. And he said nothing more. Because that's where they talk in Alaska. Uh, they, they, they assume, you know, it's like one big family up there. You'll be back, see. Apparently, I didn't look like a two. He said, come on back sometime. I said, yeah, okay. So I get in the plane, and uh, I'm walking past the stewardess who is putting the gun in the rack. And I said, 
Boy, that uh, some guy back there. She, yeah, she, he's uh, he's uh, he's uh, in charge of this thing here, this station here. I said, oh yeah. She said, you notice his arm? I said, yeah, I did. She says, a bear got it. I said, a bear got it. I mean, you know, this is kind of a surprising thing. You don't run into that often here in New York. You know, guy's arm taken off by a bear. And I figured he must have been hunting a bear or something. You know, <laughs> and the bear was wounded. We always have this myth that bears and things don't do anything unless man, evil man, comes and tells them to do it or causes them to do it. And I said, the hunting accident. Oh, she said, oh, no. I said, what happened? She said, well, the, the bear attacked his cabin. I said, the bear attacked his cabin? She said, yeah, he just came down out of the out of the mountain and smashed his cabin. I said, you mean he just came down and saw the cabin and said, uh, you know, let's get rid of the cabin. She said, yeah, well, they do that. She said, they, they attack cabins, just destroy them. And if there's somebody in it, he's in trouble. And I said, well, he was obviously in the cabin. She says, yes, he was. And the bear destroyed the cabin, got his arm, and uh, he just barely uh, got got uh, got away. And I said, well, how did he get away? She said, well, a, a friend was coming over to visit him that day. <laughs> and uh, and uh, the bear saw the friend just as he was about to, to do it in this guy. You know, here he was, his arm was gone, and he took out after the friend. I says, well, did the friend get away? She says, yeah, he got away. He got up, he got up this fir tree. And I said, uh, what happened? She said, well, he stayed in the fir tree for two days till somebody came and rescued him. <laughs> I said, the bear stayed in the <laughs> Well, at that point, see, I said, excuse me, do you have any more of that, uh, that stuff out of the samovar? She said, why, of course, sir. And she goes back and turns on the samovar, and we all sat quietly drinking uh, this vodka concoction on the way to Nome. And I'm thinking all the while how much better this stuff is tasting, especially since I see that guy with that sleeve pinned up. I figured this isn't a good place to go down. I mean, this airplane better stay up. And uh, so we're sailing along. I finally get up to Nome there, see, and, and uh, this great big airstrip there, just laying out there. Man, I'll tell you, that's some airstrip, see. And uh, the, the plane comes down. There's nothing, absolutely no trees, nowhere, nothing. No trees. That's beyond the tree line. It's tundra. And by the way, that brings up a subject. I got a letter here three days ago from an ex-New Yorker, an ex-listener. He was in this area. I don't know. He might have been from Jersey someplace, but a listener from around here. And he said, Shepard, he says, I heard you tell those stories about Alaska, and I heard you do Robert's service. And he said, I listened to this for two years. And he said, and I finally, when I got out of school, he said, you got me so hung on Alaska and on Robert's service that I had to go up and I had to do something about it. And he said, I wrote letters, and I finally got a job. And he <laughs> and he said, you know what my job is? He's the leading disc jockey of Nome, Alaska. And he says, I don't think I'm ever coming back. He says, it is fantastic. That's the story. And he said, he says, Albro Gregory comes into the polar bar every night and orders beer. He says, he drinks this... Uh, this uh, they drink a beer called Olympia up there, which is a which is a beer that is brewed in in Seattle. They call it uh, well, they call it Ollie. The guy comes in, he says, "Give me an Ollie," and uh, that's all they say. Now, Give me an Ollie, and uh, he says he comes in, and he buys this Ollie, and tells us stories about Alaska. You know who Albro Gregory is? I did a show. In fact, he was on my TV show uh, that I did on Alaska. 
Albro he does look like a character right out of Hemingway. In fact, he looks like the character em- Hemingway was imitating. Has a giant beard, you know. He wears his baseball cap. Been in three major, <laughs> three major uh, escapes out of the frozen north. In fact, one time he was in an airplane that crashed at 64 below zero in the ice fields outside of Fairbanks, and he and the pilot survived and walked back three weeks out of the wilds, 65 below zero, with nothing but one blanket between them. How's that for a man? tell you, he's not going to worry about getting a cab on 6th Avenue. So, uh, nevertheless, this guy writes me the story. So here we come, you know, and I just want to, want to let you know what, what terrible influence my work has had on guys' heads. <laughs> there he is up in Nome. He said, it's because of you. And he said, you, you got me interested in radio anyway. So, anyway, coming into Nome, you come into this big flat, it's just like a plane. It's a, it's lays on the, on, the, on the Arctic Ocean. And there's nothing there. Absolutely nothing. It's just silent. And there's low rolling purple hills rise up in the background. No trees on them, but this low purple reddish undergrowth, which is kind of matte-like. It's curious stuff, but it, it, when you get close to it, it's like millions and millions of tiny flowers. This is tundra. Now, on the top of this one hill, if you want to see something really eerie, right on the top of the hill are what looks like, it, off in the distance you see it, like, like four or five great Stonehenge monoliths standing up against the sky, absolutely pitch black. But huge, great, flat, almost like uh, big s- sheets of slate, black. They look like black uh, rock just standing. That's the only thing on the horizon. They just stand there. And they're huge. They may be 75, 85, maybe 100 feet tall. You know what they are? They're this great radar installation. It's painted jet black, and it stands... And, and just watches north to the Arctic Circle. It's, the, it's one of the far northern outposts of the dew line. The, uh, the air warning system just stands on this great hill. And, and I, I, the plane laid down. We got out of the plane and walked towards the airport. And immediately you, you knew you weren't dressed. <laughs> you know, there's that cool, clammy coldness that comes in the middle of August. And so the airline... There's a little room that everybody who gets out, they know you're not going to go anywhere. There's no place you go out of Nome. That's it. You've got to come back through this airport. And so they give everybody that gets off the plane a park at aware. The airline does. And they're all orange and green and yellow, made by the Eskimos up there, by the way. They're green and orange and fur-lined with a fur hood. And uh, they, they fit you to a parka. They give you the parka, and that's it. You, you go into town. And that's your parka until you leave town. <laughs> and so, so uh, we, we 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 milled around the airport waiting for a while, you know, to feel that cold air. And down, down, uh, you could see down lower down towards the far end of the runway, you could see the the soft sparkling, the the silver quality of the of the Bering Sea, which is uh, curiously milky. It's an odd looking ocean, no big waves or anything, but it's a true Arctic type sea. And five minutes later. I'm sitting in the bar, the bar, the polar bar. It's a great name for a bar. And across the street uh, is is a is a in front of the 
the Gnome Nuggets office is a great carved white, it, it towers over the street, is a great carved painted white polar bear standing on its hind feet, giant polar bear looking out over the main street of Nome. And I said to Albro, who came in there, he, he came to greet us, you know, he's, a, he's the editor of the Gnome Nugget. I said, Albro, I said, the polar bears, you have polar bears? He says, do we have polar bears? He says, yes, we do have polar bears. He said, but don't ask to be shown one. <laughs> he said, because if you, if you get close enough to see a polar bear, you're already in trouble. And I said, you mean you really have polar He says, yes. He says, you're going up to Kotzebue shortly, which is uh, just up north of the Arctic Circle. And we did. We flew out of Nome, went up to Kotzebue. He said, you know that area up there. He says, is, is considered the polar bear center of the world. There are more polar bears around there than people. Because that's it. That's where the polar bears are. I said, uh, are they the way they're reputed to be? He said, yes, they are. Beautiful. That is a beautiful animal. He said, but like most things of beauty, it is probably as lethal as it is beautiful. Just like a woman, you know. More beautiful she is, the bad, more bad news she is. Just the way it is. The way it is in nature. He said, let's face it, the hooded cobra's a beautiful looking snake. And the tiger's a beautiful animal, but uh, they don't make nice household pets, in spite of Disney. He said, hey, they're up there. He said, by the way, he says, before you go, he says, you should pick up some of this beautiful uh, ivory that the Eskimos do. He says, they have a sense of humor, you know. He says, they like to do ivory carvings of the mating habits of polar bears. So you ought to pick up one. I said, okay. So by the way, there's two types of carving, you know. They make one out of uh, whale ivory, and the other is from mastodon ivory, which we find in this area. I said, mastodon ivory? Yes. It's around. He says, how about another ollie? Hey, uh, bartender, bring three more ollies over here. One for my friend and two for me. That's the way the evening went. Alaska. And tonight, uh, we'd like to salute old, uh, old Raider, who has just broken his record. 57 cabins in one month, destroyed, raised to the ground. And he's still stomping around out there in the tundra. <laughs> yeah, this is WOR New York. You stay tuned for Lester Smith and the News. This is the news in detail on the hour from the WR Newsroom. Lester Smith reporting. An explosion aboard the United States destroyer Basilone, 100 miles east of Newport, Rhode Island, tonight killed three sailors, injured eight others. The explosion in the boiler room occurred shortly after 6 p.m. Four of the injured, burned critically, were flown to St. Albans Naval Hospital in Queens. The other four remained aboard the vessel. The cause of the explosion not immediately known, the ship is now proceeding under its own power to Quonset Point, Rhode Island, its home base. It's expected to arrive at 7 a.m. First report said a fire followed the explosion. That report was erroneous. The Basilone normally carries a crew of 14 officers and 260 enlisted men. Names of the casualties have not been released pending notification of next of kin. 37-year-old Henry Sentner of Seagirt, New Jersey, the accused kidnapper of Emmanuel Gambino, nephew of reputed underworld chieftain Carlo Gambino, pleaded guilty to extortion and conspiracy today in Brooklyn Federal Court. 
And for this, he can receive a maximum sentence of 25 years and no more. The reason? Well, next week, Sentinel will plead guilty reportedly to a murder indictment, but that charge will be wiped from the books and no additional penalty will be imposed. Sentner reportedly has that assurance from federal prosecutor Dillon because of his cooperation with the federal authorities. Sentner demanded $350,000 ransom from the elder Gambino for the release of his nephew, but there could have been no release because the younger Gambino apparently was already dead. Reportedly, Sentner had welched on a $76,000 gambling debt, and the younger Gambino was pressuring him for the money. Juan Corona, the farm labor contractor found guilty of killing 25 migrant workers last month, will be away a long, long time. He was sentenced today to serve 25 consecutive life prison terms. A judge in Fairfield, California, denied a defense plea for a new trial. Corona showed no emotion when the judge imposed sentence. He clutched a Bible, and that was all. The judge really threw the book around. He sentenced the defense attorney to serve 54 days for contempt of court. And he imposed five-day sentences for the district attorney and a special prosecutor, and for the same reason. A federal judge has delayed the government's order posting armed guards at the nation's airports. Newsman Dennis Kahane reports from Washington. A federal judge has told the government that it cannot require airports to hire private security guards until he has had time to study the matter. The government requirement, which would have been effective Tuesday, would have forced airports to hire armed guards and post them at boarding gates as an anti-hijacking measure. But U.S. District Court Judge John Smith, acting on a motion by an airport operator's organization,